0: Good evening, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are. I Wanna welcome everyone to the LSE Festival for today's panel. My name is Peter Trubowitz. I'm a professor in the International Relations Department and Director of the US Center at the LSE, which is hosting today's panel about the future of US foreign policy. You know, there was a time when you could teach a course on modern American foreign policy and say very little about isolationism what it is, what inspires it and why American leaders in another time treated it as wise and prudent strategy. For decades after World War II, liberal internationalism was so dominant in American political life and in the ivory tower, that little was said, let alone written about isolationism. Those days are over. Over the past decade, and especially the past four years, the debate inside Washington and the country at large has changed. There is renewed interest in foreign policy strategies like isolationism and nationalism that were once so central to American statecraft. In Charles Kupchan's book, Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the World, explores this lost history of isolationism, and considers its relevance today at a time when so many in the US are urging the country to pull back. Given the timeliness of this issue and the new Biden administration's efforts to renew US support for liberal internationalism after four years of Trump's rejection of it, we thought it would be a good idea to put together a panel to flesh out the issues, the trade-offs and possible futures for the US and I'm delighted to have both Charles Kupchan and Leslie Vinjamori on the platform with us today to discuss these important issues for the United States and the world at large. A few words about our speakers before we get down to business. Professor Kupchan is based in the School of Foreign Service and the Government Department at Georgetown University and wears a second hat as Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He served as Special Assistant to the President in the Obama White House and on the National Security Council in both the Obama and the first Clinton administrations. He's published widely on international politics and US foreign policy. Dr. Vinjamori is a reader in international relations and chair of the international relations speaker series at SOAS and an alumna of LSE. She also wears two hats, actually in Leslie's case, three to be exact. When she's not teaching, She is head of the US and the Americas program and the Dean of the Queen Elizabeth II Academy for Leadership in International Affairs at Chatham House. She's published extensively on human rights, conflict and justice. So here's the running order. I've given Charlie a grand total of 20 minutes to summarize his 450 page book and the key takeaways uh, for US foreign policy today. Leslie will then take 10 minutes to offer some comments and perspective on where the US stands at this moment and what we might expect going forward. After giving Charlie a chance to respond, we'll open it up for discussion. And we have left plenty of time for questions. So please don't be shy. You can send your questions to us via the Q&A function on Zoom. And I will do my level best to put as many of them as possible to Charlie and Leslie during the discussion period. Now, normally at this point, I would ask you to put your hands together to give our speakers one of those very warm LSE welcomes that we're famous for, but that of course is not possible today. So in lieu of applause, I encourage you to pose questions in the Q&A period. Charlie and Leslie, welcome to the LSE's online platform. It is really great to have both of you back with us. Charlie, the platform is yours.
1: Thank you very much, Peter. And thanks to uh, Leslie as well for joining and to the LSE for for hosting this event. I'm I'm delighted to have the opportunity to spend the next hour with you. Uh, And I should also say in the spirit of full disclosure that the three of us are pretty good friends that have known each other for a long time, but we will not let that get in the way of a (laughs) vigorous exchange of views uh, uh, today. That much I can can promise. I'm gonna start off by relating the book to the moment and then I'll back up a little bit to discuss the history. After all, it's mostly a a book of, of American history. I think that we are at the beginning of what I would call the third era of American statecraft. The first era ran from 1789 to 1941. It's the era that many of us are not very familiar with. It's the era of isolationism in which the United States generally sought geopolitical detachment from the outside world. It traded with the world, it sent missionaries and diplomats abroad, but it generally wanted to tend its own garden strategically, the own garden being North America, and in some instances, the broader Western hemisphere. The second era ran from 1941 through the presidency of Barack Obama, and that's the era of liberal internationalism. And that during that era, the United States swung to the opposite extreme. It could find few strategic entanglements that it wanted to avoid. It had bases and troops all over the world. American power and American partnership with allies were ever present. Uh, And this was really the era of Pax Americana. I think that second era of American statecraft came to an end, January 20, 2017, when Trump gave his inaugural address and he said, it's America first. From this day forward, it's only America first. Going back to the America first committee of 1940 that was formed to block Roosevelt from more engagement in World War II. We're not going back to the era of isolationism, but I think we're we're gonna have to look for a melding, a middle ground between the unstinting internationalism that came before Trump and the hardcore isolationism that came before World War II. Because in a globalized world, the United States can't afford to go back to isolationism. At the same time, the internationalism of the last 80 years has lost its political traction. Trump was elected and got 74 million votes in part because Many Americans feel that there has been too much world and not enough America, too many wars, too many free trade pacts, too many immigrants, too many packs, too many alliances. And he said, it's enough already, I hear you. The problem is that Trump overcorrected. And instead of realigning American commitments and America's political will, he took a wrecking ball to the world that America made. And so I think the task before Joe Biden is to correct for Trump's overcorrection and to find that sweet spot in American politics between overreach, where we ended up, particularly after the wars of 9-11 and underreach, where we clearly were during the 1930s when the United States ran for cover while Nazism and fascism overran Europe and East Asia. So that's kind of the quick and dirty version, Peter, of the argument that I want to make today, let me now back up a bit and tell you how I arrive at this conclusion, at this summary. You know, I started to to work on this book well before Trump was elected, in, in part because I began to sense that the United States was losing interest in international affairs, at least to the degree that it had that, it had that interest before the end of uh, the Cold War. Uh, and all three of us, on this call, you know we, we're old enough to have come of age during the Cold War. Uh, I went to grad school in the 1980s. I started teaching in the 1980s before the Berlin Wall came down. And so I grew up in a world in which America was profoundly and I thought, irretrievably internationalist. But after the end of the Cold War, and especially after the the wars of 9/ eleven I began to say, "You know what?" this irretrievable internationalism may not be so irretrievable. And that's when I began to go back and read American history and try to to rediscover what you were talking about, Peter. This lost narrative, this lost account of an America that tried to run away from the world rather than run the world. And so the book really tells the story of America's effort to shun foreign entanglement going back to the founding era. And it was George Washington who, in his farewell address, said, we would like commercial connections with everyone, political connections with no one, i.e., we want to be a trading nation, but we don't want to engage in the game of realpolitik and great power politics. Americans, for several generations thereafter, listened to him. They tried to go abroad and to extend foreign commitments in 1898, the Spanish-American War again in 1917, World War I, Americans didn't like what they got. And in 1920, Senator Harry uh, Warren Harding ran for election as president and his platform was, I stand for the policies of George Washington. I oppose entangling alliances to go back to Thomas Jefferson's phrase. He won in a landslide, And that began the era of America's retreat from internationalism in the 1920s and the 1930s. I'll just tell you one quick story to give you some sense as to how powerful this aversion to entanglement was. And it goes back to the founding days. In 1778, the United States was losing its war of independence. The founders thereby said, you know what? If we don't get help we will not achieve independence. And so they reached across the the island, the pond, and they had said to the French, please help. And the French sent arms and money and ships and troops. And had it not been for help from the French, we still may be the United States, a British colony. You never know. I may be speaking with a British accent, but the French pulled our chestnuts out of the fire. We won the Revolutionary War and began life as an independent nation. Well, not long after, 1793 to be exact, war breaks out again between France and Britain. And the French King says to George Washington, hey, we pulled your chestnuts out of the fire. Our alliance with you still exists. How many troops, how many arms, how many soldiers are you sending? What does George Washington do? He issues a proclamation of neutrality in which he says to the French, good night and good luck you are on your own. And that was the last time the United States had a military alliance until after World War II. 1793, Washington commits a bald act of perfidy and reneges on an alliance with France. And it wasn't for over 150 years that we had another alliance. And American policy during this period was informed by Uh, a, a different brand of American exceptionalism than the one that exists today. The founders said foreign ambition will come at the expense of liberty and prosperity at home. Yes, we're a chosen nation. Yes, we should spread our model by example, but no, we do not go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. And there were different strains of isolationism. Some were libertarian, some were pacifist, Some were racist. One of the reasons the United States did not expand beyond North America is there was no appetite to integrate into the body politic non-whites and non-Christians. And that turned into an anti-immigrant sentiment in the 1880s focused first on Asians and by the 1920s on Jews and Catholics and isolationism and nativism ran together. So this is all by way of saying that when Donald Trump was, re- was elected and he unfurls America first, <clears throat> he was not some <clears throat> bolt from the blue. He was tapping in to a much older strain in American statecraft. In fact, the first and oldest strain in American statecraft. And Trump's unilateralism, his isolationism, his protectionism, his nativism, That was all part of American history from 1789 to 1941. I don't think that Trump did this because he had read a lot of history. We in fact know he doesn't read very much. I think he did it because he has an acute political sensibility. He was able to take the pulse of middle America. Middle America said too much globalism, not enough America, let's pull back. Trump heard them, Trump implemented, but as I said, he went way too far. He implemented America first in a very incompetent way, and he left America isolated, estranged from its allies, weaker at home, and weaker abroad, and I think his strategy of detachment was particularly ill-advised in an era in which the world is irretrievably globalized. We learned that the hard way with COVID-19. COVID-19 has cost this country more than half a million deaths, more than any war except the civil war has cost this country. The idea of pulling out of the World Health Organization, pulling out of international pacts, at a time when we face a global crisis underscores the degree to which no country in this day and age can go it alone. So that brings me to Joe Biden and the task that I see that he has before him. As I said, I think he needs to correct for Trump's overcorrection. He needs to step back without stepping away. He needs to find the middle ground between doing too much and doing too little. And in so doing, rebuilding the political foundations of American statecraft, which have, have cracked, which have evaporated over the course of the last couple of decades. Peter, you and I wrote an article in 2007 called Dead Center, in which we already saw the erosion of the political center that was the foundation for liberal internationalism. So I think in two critical respects, Joe Biden has already begun to correct for Trump's overcorrection. One is to bring the U.S. back to being a team player the Paris Climate Agreement, the World Health Organization, the Iran nuclear deal, the uh, the alliances. In that respect, America is back. And the other key correction is that you now again have in the Oval Office, somebody who will abide by the rule of law, somebody who understands the need for political decency and civility, somebody who will abide by the traditions of Republican governance. It's only a few weeks ago that we saw the US Capitol besieged by Trump supporters. We had a president who still refuses to accept that he lost the election despite the fact that all 50 states certified Biden's victory. These were the most unusual days of my lifetime. Thank goodness they're behind us. Thank goodness we have in Joe Biden, someone who will restore the United States to its role as a model of Republican governance and political decency. So in those two respects, I think we are already back in a much better place. I would not, however, encourage Biden to throw out the baby with the bathwater. And there are three areas where I think he should continue what Trump began. One is the pullback from the Middle East, Three quarters of the American public want the U.S. out of Afghanistan and Iraq, and I think Biden should focus much more on the Eurasian heartland, Europe and Asia, and much less on the strategic periphery as a way of rebuilding American support for engagement. Two, backing away from free trade. U.S. free trade agreements have done a great deal to help some corporations but have disadvantaged many working Americans. And it's time to get better trade deals and to stand up to China, to level the playing field and to beat back their unfair trade practices. Trump began that, not very competently. Biden should continue it by building a united front against China. Third, I think Biden is going to have to restore multilateralism, but multilateralism light because there is no going back to the institutionalized order building of the post-World War II era because the politics aren't there. That means more executive agreements like the Iran deal and the Paris Agreement because that's the best we can do. But it also means going out and building public support for multilateralism because if we can't get things ratified through Congress, then we're gonna need to have to rely on the public. And that brings me to my final point if I would say that Biden has one key objective before him when it comes to the United States, it's to fix problems at home. The country's strength abroad depends on the country's strength at home. And we learned from the Trump era that we have serious problems to fix. And so I think the top priorities of Joe Biden are to tame the pandemic and get pandemic relief to invest in infrastructure and education and childcare and healthcare and green technology and manufacturing jobs. Because if we don't fix those problems, we're never gonna get our foreign policy right. And we are never going to be able to, uh, to, to repair the country from within. That's the starting point for repairing our statecraft. So I do not endorse isolationism. I think a return to isolationism would be a huge mistake for the United States, but it is something I worry about. And I would point out that many of my colleagues in the American academic world from uh, from John Mearsheimer to Stephen Walt, to Barry Posen and many others are now calling for the United States to come home, to pull out of Europe, to go offshore in East Asia. This to me would be a big mistake But the best way to make sure that we don't go down that route is to fix problems at home. Because only if we get our country up and running again, only if our lights come back on economically and politically, will we be able to rebuild the domestic foundations of a steady and purposeful brand of American statecraft. That's a critical, critical uh, task at this moment in world history.
0: Charlie, that was a terrific uh, overview of the book. Um, And you've laid out a very nice agenda there, a set of items for, um, for Leslie. So Leslie, where he lands is pull back from the Middle East, get better, get tough with China on trade, multilateralism light and clean up our act at home. <laughs> what you? What say you?
2: <laughs> I mean, you know, look, first of all, that was magnificent, Charlie. Um, and thank you, Peter, for having me. Thank you to the London School of Economics. I am an alum, I'm, I'm a very proud alum and, I, and I'd like to feel I'm a very engaged alum as well. Um, I, you know, I broadly agree with everything that Charlie says, of course. And I, I would add, I guess, let me just add build on some things that he said first and I don't think he disagrees but he didn't explicitly say it tonight um, I do think that the readjustment really begins in 2008 mm-hmm. and it might have begun earlier had it not been for the 9-11 attacks so one thing I think you know if you just to start with the history before we come up to the immediate uh, present um you know, the 1990 to 2008 period had a lot of variety in it, and Charlie didn't have time, but I think it's just important to recognize that because, of course, the the 90s, you know, we think of them as the big heyday for human rights, for America's unipolar power, for it engaging in any number of humanitarian interventions from Somalia uh not not least, of course, the ones that it didn't engage in. We still talk about those, Rwanda, but Bosnia. Um, And then we get a sharp break in 2001 where the U.S. is still massively engaged, but my God, for very different reasons and with a very different tone. And it's about securitization and counterterrorism and all the rest of it. And that period, I think, is um, from from the perspective of those of us who entered Europe at some point in there, I think a very significant one because by the time Obama comes to office, not only do I think there's a recalibration from that hyper intervention which was first about human rights and and later about uh, counter-terrorism in Afghanistan and Iraq. um, But there was also a very, very negative attitude towards the US and Europe out on the back of um, the invasion of Iraq. And I think that, you know, if we're sort of looking at the things that Charlie thinks that, and I would broadly agree that the United States needs to do now, much of what it needs to do um, is in partnership with its European allies. Um, And the difficulties of that aren't just limited to the Trump years, right? The difficulties of doing that, I think have a much deeper history. And I, so that's kind of the first point I want to make, that things were complicated before. Um, and and even the Obama years, as much as Europeans loved Obama, um, as much as he talked the talk of um, America's engagement and of not so much of democracy, certainly not in the early days, but of the kind of internationalism that really appealed and a kind of intelligence, frankly, that really appealed um, to Europeans. There was a sense that Obama was not simply bringing America back, that he wanted to do some of the things that Charlie mentions, pulling America out of the Middle East. We know how complicated that proved to be. He certainly didn't wanna be doing what he did in 2011, which I think was a hangover, the intervention in Libya. But that recalibration of America's engagement America's role in the world, I think begins in 2008, albeit through a very different strategy. And it also is on the back of what's already built up, which is a lot of antagonism, Towards America's um, exercise of power, and that's felt ex- especially in in um, in Europe. Um, the um, the second thing I wanted to comment on is, you know, how we think about the Trump years. And I know it's it's. Well, I I used to think that I knew that it was entirely agreed amongst the mainstream American international relations establishment that Trump was a symptom, not a cause. Until I read uh, last week, I think it was, the Council on Foreign Relations put out a poll and they they looked at a bunch of different leading scholars and they said, has has Trump forever changed America's foreign policy? And people were all over the map on this. It was very, very interesting. Now, you know, if you think Trump has changed America's foreign policy, it suggests that you also think that he was more than more than just a symptom, that he is actually an agent of change. And my view on, uh, on Donald Trump is that, yes, he's clearly a symptom. Charlie talks about all the different parts of America's history that he has drawn on. But I see Trump as actually much more toxic, much more dangerous, and much more uniquely um, consequential for the direction of the United States domestically. Um, and I can say more about that, but I won't right now. Um, There are two reasons why that's significant. One is because it it matters for how deep the challenge is of rebuilding America's democracy. And it also matters for this big concern that people have now, which is about the future of the Republican Party. A lot of people, as we know, are very concerned that Trumpism, that the party remains Trump's, that the party, uh, even if Trump is not um, in charge in 2024, and the Republicans are, that Trumpism still remains And that just makes the whole question of America's uh, global engagement a very problematic one, not least um, for Europe. I guess my, my two finger on that is democracy is clearly much more complicated because of Trump. But even if the Republicans returned, I'm not so sure that it's nearly as complicated as it was under Donald Trump, because I just don't think there is another person that's quite like him. Um, my next point is, and this kind of gets up to the present in terms of you know the the big challenges for the for the U.S. And, and Charlie's outlined them so well. We all we know we've heard it so many times in the last five or six weeks about the need to rebuild and reinvigorate, reinvigorate and restore America's democracy, and that foreign policy um, will be largely about that. But the you know the the two caveats or the two additional points I would add to that one is that. America's democracy, in my view, and Charlie's I think heard me say this before, America's democracy looks much worse. I mean, there are lots of problems, there are a lot of good things, but America looks much worse from Europe than it does from America, in my view. Um, Because in Europe, and especially in the UK, we see America's democracy through the lens of the media, almost entirely, and the media necessarily um, focuses on some really tough things about the US and not so much on the good news story. So why does that matter? That matters because part of America rebuilding multilateralism, light as Charlie says, reengaging in a tough way with China, which it wants to do in alliance with its partners, depends vitally and crucially on getting Europe on board. And right now, the thing that we're hearing the most, um, I think, from Europe is um, you know the dominant question that comes up time and time again: Well, what happens? What happens if in twenty twenty four? we get the Republican Party back? Should we hedge our bets? Europe has spent arguably the last four years doing work around America, thinking about how to keep things alive, waiting for America to come back. But it's not clear to me that even in this moment, um, there's confidence that the Europeans can rest easy. Now America's back in the WHO, back in Paris, potentially back in the Iran deal. Um, playing ball in NATO, et cetera, et cetera, uh, hasn't necessarily translated to confidence and clarity and planning and decision-making by the Europeans uh, to really invest in that. I think there's actually still quite a lot of hedging. So maybe the final thing I'll say so that we can go quickly to questions is on the broader strategy, I see where we're going with the Biden administration as being very much about a twin track strategy. Uh, Charlie says multilateralism light, I would say twin tracks. And one is um, going after cooperation on the big global challenges, public health, um, technology, global trade, all these things, not free trade, but certainly global trade, uh, while pushing really hard on values, working with democracies, pushing on human rights, and doing that even with those Players that are really hard to manage that twin track with, whether it's China pushing on human rights but actually wanting to engage on climate, Russia pushing on new start um, while wanting to actually be tough on democracy and human rights. We've seen the sanctions. Um, and that for me is the big dilemma going forward. Can the twin can the twin track strategy actually work? Can you do multilateralism and cooperation even with your competitors at the same time that you're really playing the values card? Um, For me, that's a very dramatic shift, actually, from 2008, from 2016. It almost takes us back in certain kinds of ways um, to the pre-2001 period, and I'll stop there.
0: Wow, that's great. Um, Leslie, terrific set of uh, comments to get us um, started. So, Charlie, she questions, Leslie questions your periodization um, uh, when the third era begins. Maybe it's it started on Barack Obama's watch, whether Trump should be understood as symptom or cause, whether the Europeans <laughs> really believe that things are, are changing um, and um, uh, and and whether this should be viewed as kind of like a twin track. But I, I, I think, you know, it, it might be worth just, well, I'll leave it up to you to decide what you wanna respond to. And then I wanna kind of turn to questions and I do Before I give you the floor, I just want to welcome, we have a lot of people on the platform. We have folks from the Netherlands, Ecuador, the U.S., South Africa, Thailand, the Philippines, Kazakhstan, and of course, the U.K. You're on the LSE platform. Charlie?
1: Yeah, I mean, I didn't hear Leslie question anything I said, Peter, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she just, she made great, great, great comments. And so I'm not gonna uh, uh, take issue with anything. I I, I just want to foot stomp one of her points because I think it's really important. And that is that you're right, Leslie, that that it this story that we're telling today started a lot earlier than 2017. Uh, I think that what happened is it, it in 2017, we all took a really cold shower and we said, holy moly, we have a problem, Houston. Uh, and and, we, you know, and now we know that these problems were building over a long period of time. Uh, at that for example, you know, the, America's middle class has, has seen declining wages and declining opportunities for decades. This didn't start right before Trump was elected. You're right to point out that Barack Obama was a retrenchment president. Right. He ran for reelection on a bumper sticker that was it's time for nation building at home. He just got sucked back in by the Islamic State and the Taliban and trouble and pushed by the by the Pentagon. Uh, And so Trump comes in and and he exploits the frustration of the American electorate with uh, the difficulty that 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 that. uh Obama had in in sort of downsizing American ambition but I think that I think we we agree that there are serious problems that we collectively have to solve and this is not an American problem right the UK has a very similar uh challenge ahead when it comes to the future of work immigration economic insecurity populism Uh, and so that this is a, a conversation that we can have together, but I do think that that where I ended up is is the kind of place that we all need to be, and that is this is this is an inside out problem, that we can't really go out and solve our relationship with Russia, deal with China, figure out our relationship with Saudi Arabia until. Uh we we really address the problems here at home. That that's the top priority. We can't we obviously can't ignore the foreign policy agenda, but it seems to me that more so than in any other point in our lifetimes, our top priorities are at home.
0: Well, Charlie, maybe on that, I'm gonna open this up to the, the questions. They're coming in fast and 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 furiously. Um but I think just to pick up on this last point. Um uh, Simone uh, Ferron asks, um, how can America rebuild itself at home while focusing on its foreign policy is not not a liberal rephrasing of the concept of America first so is this not just fancy footwork. Um, and um, I, I don't know what your a reaction to that and then I'm going to bring a, a couple of other questions in.
1: Well, Simone, guilty as charged. <laughs> you know, I, I don't like the, fr- the phrase uh, uh, America first. I think that uh, I'm more comfortable with let's put Americans first. Uh, and that we do need to deal with the dislocations and discontents of people here at home so that we have political solvency, so that we restore some sense of, con- of consensus in the United States Otherwise, we'll see Trump 2.0, or we'll just go back and forth from Clinton to Bush to Obama to Trump to Biden. And as Leslie was saying, mm-hmm. Europeans and other friends are just going to say, to hell with you. You guys can't make up your mind. We're not going to stand around and wait for, for you to, to, to go dancing with us. Good night. Uh, we, we, we We need to get we need to, to, to put our, our sort of, um, our, we need, let's put it this way, we need to recenter American politics. Uh, and so I don't think that that means doing what Trump did, right, Trump had the right instincts, but he, did, he was disastrous when it came to implementation. And so when Biden says we need a, a foreign policy for the middle class, When Biden says there's no longer a bright line between domestic and foreign policy, I think he's right and I think he means it. The question is, can he figure out what that means on a day-to-day basis? Can we get the interests of farmers, laborers, low-skilled, lower-educated white Americans, can we get their voice in the room so that what we do on a daily basis whether it is in a trade deal, whether it is our relations with China, whether it is war in the Middle East, can we make sure that their voices and their concerns are part of policymaking?
0: Leslie, do you want to um, come in on this?
2: Yeah, I'll just say one thing. I mean, I think it's I, I think it's very clear that we are in a. I mean, I I buy it, hook, line, and sinker. We are in a global competition to demon to to de- demonstrate whether or not democracy works. And if we don't demonstrate it at home, it certainly isn't going to work abroad. Um, And I guess the challenge in delivering what Charlie's talking about is also, you know, can you do that? It's not only can you bring them in and get their voices in, but it's also can you deliver the goods at a time when America's falling further and further and further behind on education, on tech policy, on artificial intelligence, on semiconductor chips, right? And any number of really, really concrete things. Um, and can you move forward in an, into a high tech economy that where a lot of people are gonna lose? You know, Can we put the, the tools in place to transition them, to protect them? Um, while we are trying to uh, compete together with Europe on the global stage. And I think that that's where, you know, it gets very, very specific. And that's where the challenge is. But I, I think we are really in, you know, a values, highly competitive, um, values based world um, that is very different from what we've seen for quite a long time. That's great. Democracy was doing pretty well before.
0: So we, there, I, I, we've got the questions, are, can, they're still coming. We're about 40 questions in. There are about 40 in the lined up. One for Charlie, one for Leslie. So for M, from Emma Hall, this is Charlie for you. Um, this is Emma Hall from Warwick, Warwick University. Do you think a renewed narrative of American exceptionalism has a role to play in Biden's multilateralism life. Can it be connected somehow to narratives in America's past? Hold that thought. Um, Leslie, for you, from Jan um, Zelezny, PhD candidate, University of West Bohemia in the Czech Republic. He asks, "Do, do you think that the EU will finally choose a side in the unfolding power rivalry competition between the United States and China in the years to come, or will it continue its hedging policies, refusing to accept the confrontational paradigm? Great questions. Um, Charlie, maybe maybe you go ahead and take the first one.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna relate Emma's question to Leslie's last comment about we need to fight for democracy, uh, because I agree with that. And we're we are at this kind of what you could call a historical inflection point, Mm -hmm. uh, in which it's possible, it's possible that we may have already passed through the high watermark of what we call the the liberal international order, uh, and that it continues to erode from within. Uh, I don't, hope that happens i don't think it's going to happen but it is something that we need to take seriously given populism on both sides of the atlantic given the direction of politics in uh in various countries including in in europe and uh i do think that there that the that the narrative of american exceptionalism has played an important historical role number 1 in uniting the nation in creating a, a shared american identity. And I also think it has helped the United States on balance, play a role in tilting the world in the right direction. Maybe I'm too much too pro-American and, and Leslie, tell me if I am, but you know, do I think that this country, the country I live in has on balance made the world a safer, more prosperous, more dignified, more liberal place? Yes, I do. Have we made big mistakes? You bet, Uh, including more recently in the Middle East. But I do think that a world that doesn't have American exceptionalism as a narrative that pushes the United States out there to tilt history in the right direction is a a less safe world because nobody else is going to do that. You know, we saw... Merkel emerge as the leader of the free world during Trump's presidency, but I don't think that Germany and or the EU has the oomph. I think the EU and the US together with allies in Asia do have the oomph, uh, but but the US in my mind is the sine qua non, the party without which we cannot make it. Leslie.
2: I agree with Charlie, and I think, and I would add, and it gets me into the question that I'm meant to answer, which is the problem is that, you know, the people and the economy and the whole thing is moving east, India, which matters a lot on every dimension, mm-hmm. is now rated, what, 53rd when it comes to democracy. So can America, is America enough, is the question. And you know when when autocracy keeps delivering, as many autocracies are, but by far uh, far from all, then then it gets more complicated if democracy doesn't really start producing. Um, on the Europe and China, I mean, it is you know Charlie. I'm sure has a huge amount to say about this, but I got asked the question by Peter, so I'll try and answer it. I personally think that Europe is going to hedge and hedge and hedge and hedge and hedge. And hedge. Absent a black swan event or something that makes them choose. I think that Germany, even though we will, you know, there will be a change in Germany, there will be a new leader, maybe that will move the dial. But I think that Germany is going to um, hold off at all costs having to choose between the US and China. And at the moment, it looks like, you know, that's a viable position. It's not a desirable position for the US, but it's a viable position. And you know, part of the deal is that you know China is not seen to be a national security problem by most Europeans. It just isn't, and it's a huge economic. Um, it's, it's valued as an economic partner, as we all know, not least by Germany. So I, I think this is going to be a huge problem, and I don't see it going away anytime soon. Britain's the exception, very interestingly. I think Britain will line up with the US.
0: So uh, that's great, and we could we could. Just drill down for the rest, of the remaining 15 minutes on this particular issue. I'm sure the three of us, but I want to return to um, to something that Charlie raised in the um, in the presentation about the kind of debate among um, academics in the United States and people kind of in you know in the in the in the think tank world um, about. Where America's vital interests lie, where the investment should be. And I'm getting a lot of questions that speak to this in the, in the, in the chat box here. Uh, Cameron Howes from an LSE um, student asked, where does Russian containment fit into U.S. foreign policy in the coming decade? And I think just to broaden that out a little bit, You know, one thing that most academics in the U.S. who focus on this can agree agree on is that the U.S. needs to pull back from the Middle East, where the divisions arise is over, and, and almost everyone thinks that Asia should be, there should be more focus on Asia. The issue is, should the U.S. wind down in Europe as well or not? And Charlie, I know your position is that it should not. Um, And Leslie, my sense is your position is that the U.S. needs to remain engaged in Europe. Explain why. Why is it, to go to Cameron Howe's question, why does Russia pose an issue? Is that the reason that the U.S. needs to remain engaged? Or is it because of commercial relations? What is it? What's the driver there? Either Um, one of you. Go ahead.
1: You know, I think that this is the this is the conversation we should have in the sense that in my mind, we got to get out of this bimodal uh, conversation where we've got, you know, the restraint school saying come home America and the liberal internationalists saying, oh, everything's fine. I don't know what you're talking about. Liberal internationalism is alive and well. This is the debate we need to have. And that is. What's vital? what's not? What can we afford to let go of? Wh- where can we lean in? so uh I'm glad you've you've posed it in this way. Uh, for me, the American commitment to Europe needs to remain intact, I guess for three reasons: One is Russia, which I consider to be a continuing troublemaker. Uh, you know, they've gone into Georgia, in Ukraine, in Syria, in Libya. Uh, Do I think that they're going to invade the Baltics? No, I do not, in part because there's a NATO commitment and there's an American uh, commitment. So I think the traditional uh, rationale, keeping Europe free, keeping it from under the guise of a hostile power remains, even though I do think it's a, a remote issue. Second, I'm not sure that the EU is quite ready for what Macron calls strategic autonomy. Uh, We need another decade or two or three before Europe is prepared to stand on its own two feet, geopolitically, but also politically. Uh, I think that if the US were to leave, there would be a lot of jitters about the impact on the European Union and European stability. And then finally, I, I believe in the continued importance of the US-Europe partnership as a as a team. You know, everything that, that we want to do in the world, whether it is migration in the Mediterranean, whether it's climate change, cybersecurity, digital regulation, mm-hmm. uh, pandemics, our partner of choice remains Europe. And I don't see that changing anytime soon, in part because the alternatives maybe the Chinese, maybe the Indians, maybe the Brazilians. They're not, in my mind, about to step up to the plate and say, hey, we want to be major provision providers of public goods. Leslie?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I agree with that, and I would link it a little bit more tightly even, which is that I think if the US pulled out of um, Europe, that uh, Europe wouldn't feel like it needed to go to the US First, it already hedges right on the on the some of the tough issues with China, but it wouldn't feel like it needed to go to the U.S. first on these big global challenges um, that Charlie, some of which Charlie listed, that are absolutely critical to having that not only that mass with that deep history, but it, it is the it is the democracy question. It's the values. It's the history. It's the democracy. I don't think strategic autonomy is a question of when. I think it's not happening. I'm very, very skeptical. So I don't think it's just that they're not there, I I don't think they're heading there. Um, I, I've yeah, I'm not convinced. So um but yeah, and the thing the other thing I would add with Russia is um in addition to the deterrent factor, it's also, you know, there is there's all this other stuff going on, right? There's solar winds, there's cyber and, and the and the Europeans are good cooperators with us on those issues, especially the British. Um, And so I I absolutely think that the U.S. should remain committed to Europe. Who else are we going to work with in this way? I mean, there's nobody else. There is nobody else like this.
0: Okay, two lightning rounds. Choose one and briefly explain why. Who's the person you judge as the single biggest threat to Biden's foreign policy agenda over the next year? Xi Jinping? Xi Jinping? Kim Jong Un, uh, Mitch McConnell, Vladimir Putin, someone else. Charlie.
1: Probably Donald Trump. Because <laughs> uh, I, think, I think Trump has the ability uh, to, and perhaps the inclination, to try to scuttle Biden's presidency by continuing to push the Republican Party toward obstructionism, conspiracy theory, uh, and uh, you know a, a posture that is not focused upon the welfare of the United States. And as I said earlier on, this is an inside-out problem. Uh, and so I'm much more worried about the domestic situation, Congress, the lack of bipartisanship, the possibility of Biden losing the midterms than I am about Xi Jinping.
0: Leslie, where do you come down on that? Domestic
2: I think it's I think it's, I think it's um, the Chinese leadership. I mean I guess, you know, I guess on the things that matter most on foreign policy, I think that I think that the Republicans will play ball on the things that matter most for foreign, mm-hmm. the biggest security threats and the biggest economic threats and Taiwan and the Taiwan Straits and the semiconductors and competition with China. I, I actually think that the US domestic context will be less of an issue and that some really difficult things and the trend line is tough on China. So I think China's the problem.
0: So another question along the same lines, but I get you, I want you to think out for years. So Biden has, you know, he's putting a lot of emphasis on allies and alliances who's gonna to prove to be the single most valuable ally over the next four years? Britain, France, Germany, Australia, Japan. I mean, is it the special relationship or does he need like, you know, does he need France? Does he need Paris to be able to to really move the EU or is it Germany? Who's But Germany's pushing back on over, over China in a way, I think that, that that France is not. Where's or is it? Is it in the other theater? I know that this is kind of you know it's a bit artificial, but I think it's you know, fun. Just, what?
2: It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and well, we don't, so you don't have go first. Time, so you got to oh, do no, I'll go first. first. <laughs> I think it's um, India, ah. Britain, Japan.
0: Okay. Charlie,
2: and why? I'll say why after Charlie goes.
1: I think it's EU, South Korea, and Japan.
0: So both of you think about it around Eurasia, that you need parties around Eurasia, the US needs parties around Eurasia because of geopolitics.
1: Yeah, I think India is going to keep its head down uh-huh. And that's why I think Japan and South Korea matter more, particularly on the on the Korean Peninsula, which is a big big agenda item for Biden.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that first of all, Britain matters more than Europe because Britain has the hard security and it has a lot of economic might and it has a lot of knowledge. Um, uh, and I live here, <laughs> um, uh-huh. and I think that I think India matters a lot for the short, but especially the medium term, the size, the scale, the geopolitical position, the market. And, you know, India is kind of, we don't know which way it's going to go on the democracy question. And so I think that which way it goes really tilts the balance of power in Asia and in terms of, you know, America's key partnerships. I just think, yeah, I think it matters a huge amount on both dimensions, geostrategic, geoeconomic.
0: Okay, you know, I think we have a bunch of questions also here. Not surprisingly, we're in the UK. Well, you're not, Charlie, but um, about about the special relationship, and um, and it's interesting because you know um, when Biden was elected over here, everyone thought that the special relationship, um, the U.S. UK relationship, was headed down the tubes. Um, Johnson had aligned himself, Boris Johnson had aligned himself with Trump. Biden had ruled out upfront before the election even, you know, a US-UK trade deal anytime t- soon. But now it's four months later. And the special relationship actually looks like it's alive and kicking right now. Um, and, uh, you know, the, because you can see that the two countries are, are, are working on some issues like climate and human rights. And, you know, what what happened here? And how did that happen? You know, is it is it just deep, old ties? Or is it they somehow really both need each other despite the differences? Leslie, you are a keen observer of the UK scene. It's uh, maybe take a first place. We ran
2: Europe for Obama, but okay, I'll go first. Um, uh, you know, it's look, Long-time bedfellows, hard, you know, two countries that believe in hard security, hard investing in the military and defense. I mean, I never really, I thought it was very strange that everybody was suddenly worried about the U.S. and the U.K. Um, the fact that, as you know, the U.K. has kind of parked the, the focus on trade. I think it's deep history of cooperation on intelligence on defense. I think it's deep shared culture. I think it's shared understanding about universities i think it's so deep and so layered and actually the interests you know the interests and the calculations line up and i was never one of these people who for the last four years there were so many brits that spent a lot of time too much time saying you know is britain should britain be looking towards europe or should it be looking towards the u.s artificial distinction and in part because britain was never going to look away from the u.s That's where its interests are. That's where its protection is. That's where its culture,
1: shared culture is. Mm -hmm. Charlie. You know, it's interesting that you put the question that way. And I'm guessing that you posed it the way you did because in the UK, there's a lot of media attention to the special relationship. Um, To be honest with you, when you asked the question, I was like, what's he talking about? (laughs) Because over here, there's almost no attention. To the special relationship. And I think that speaks volumes. Now, does that mean that there isn't a special relationship? No, there is. Uh, it, 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 I agree with Leslie that there's no country that's closer to the US for historical reasons, intelligence reasons, cultural reasons, linguistic reasons. Uh, you know, we're kind of attached at the hip. That's not going to go away. But I do think that. Britain's decision to leave the European Union makes the UK less immediately relevant to the United States. That doesn't mean again that, that, it's, that the relationship is going to wither, it will not. But I didn't put the UK in that list of EU Northeast Asia because I do worry. I do worry that the trajectory of the United Kingdom in global affairs is downward. And that is in my mind a setback for all of us given the outsized role that the UK has historically played.
0: Well, I think what we're gonna do is we are going to leave it on that point because we've reached the bewitching hour. Um, And I I just wanna say, you know, um, that, it's been great to have both of you, uh, Charlie and, and, and Leslie on the, on the platform and an opportunity to, um, to get your thoughts on kind of where the United States is, where it's come from and where it's headed. And um, you know, uh, you've know, left us, I think everybody here with plenty of, of food for thought. So on behalf of the LSE Festival, and the U.S. Center, I want to thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts with us. It really could not have been more timely. To everybody out there, be careful, stay safe, and stay a couple meters apart.